wish I would have. Thank you, Dr. Ayler, for your introduction. Uh, some of you know I am currently a second year infectious disease fellow here at USF. Um, and I will be uh, discussing my topic uh, at, with you guys today. So as an introduction, why did I choose this topic? Um, among my areas of interest is um, HIV AIDS. I like also hepatitis. I like global health, tropical and travel medicine. So I thought it was fitting to do something related to HIV. I was, one day I was just Netflix and chill, browsing through uh, the, the Netflix options, and I saw this uh, docu-series from CNN, 70s, 80s, and 90s, I'm not sure if you have seen it. Um, and I was just browsing through the episodes, and there was one on the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, and it was from CNN, this docu-series, and I was like, let's watch it. And it really uh, was an eye-opener for me because um, as a contemporary HIV provider and infectious disease fellow in training, there was a lot about that history that I was not aware of. And there's a lot of what we do today that stems from these, this miles, these milestones. So I thought it, uh, then Dr. Ayler sent the email, he had suggested it in the topics, I had an aha moment, and here, here we are now. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, um, this image I am sharing with you guys is, uh, it was taken by a photographer, Therese um, Freire, in 1990. It was published in the live edition of Time Magazine at the time, and it was uh, among, voted among the 100 photographs, the most influential images of all times. So what are we seeing here? This is a photograph titled The Face of AIDS. Um, his name is David Kirby. He is a 32-year-old man who's diagnosed with AIDS. He is on his deathbed, um, and he died surrounded by his family. Um, the picture not only shows the suffering of the patient, also shows the mourning and the heartbreak of the family. It humanized AIDS in a moment where it wasn't a very uh, public to talk about it. Um, it would further on become an ad. Uh, many At the time, many magazines were boycotting that they didn't want to run the ad because of the controversy. Um, but the, the parents um, consented to the use of the photograph because they thought it was time that people saw the truth about AIDS. So the objectives of my presentation are to highlight the important milestones in HIV AIDS history, uh, to recognize the impact of HIV AIDS in the US and worldwide, um, to describe the different types of responses uh, that, uh, that followed after the AIDS epidemic uh, started, um, mention what the advances, advances we have made in terms of diagnosis, treatment, prevention, um, and to discuss where we are now and the challenges that lay ahead. Um, as a disclaimer, since this is just a short talk, 30 to 45 minutes, there's a lot that I had to leave out of uh, the presentation because of the time constraints. So I focus more on the US history, not global history of HIV AIDS. This is a whole separate topic. I also uh, tried to highlight kind of the most important milestones, but there's a lot of milestones that I left out, not because they weren't important, but because I just wanted to have some continuity uh, in the presentation. Um, so the first decade, the 80s, um, how it all started. 
1981. So there was these reports uh, from these physicians that were noticing this rare lung infection among homosexual men in Los Angeles, and they reported it to the CDC. Um, CDC then report, uh, on June 5th uh, releases this MMWR report uh, where they talk about this rare lung infection, which is called pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, PCP, uh, among five men and gay men in Los Angeles. Um, after this was reported, they started to get calls about clusters of um, men, homosexual men, who were having this usually unusually aggressive skin cancer. They were calling it, is it this a contagious form of cancer? Um, and then um, more case reports followed. On a month later, July 3rd, uh, the CDC publishes this MMWR about that skin cancer, what we know as Kaposi's sarcoma, and they also identified more cases of the PCP pneumonia um, in homosexual men in New York City and in California, other places, not just Los Angeles, also San Francisco. Um, the New York Times also uh, publishes this uh, article called Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals that same year. And also that same year, New England Journal didn't fall behind. They published articles on PCP. So by the end of 1981, a total of 270 cases of a severe immune deficiency uh, was reported among gay men, um, and 121 deaths of those who 270 cases in the United States. They knew it was this disease that was immune compromising, but they were not sure you know, what caused it, what were the risk factors. So, in 1981, the <clears throat> CDC put together a task force that was going to uh, develop a case definition and also establish risk factors on this new disease. Um, and their efforts were, would mainly be uh, reflected in 1982. So, in 1982, C CDC uses the term AIDS for the first time, which is autoimmune deficiency syndrome. They also released the first case definition, which is as follows. A disease at least moderately predictive of a defect in cell-mediated immunity with no known case for diminished resistance to that disease. Um, also in 1982, the first case of AIDS in an infant was reported. And also later on in that year, in December, 22 infants were uh, diagnosed with AIDS. So let's define the outbreak. And the CDC task force, what they their goal was to answer the following questions. What, who, when, where, how, and why? Um, what we were talking about. We're talking about AIDS, autoimmune deficiency. Who? So they identified four risk factors uh, in that year. One, men who had sex with men. Two, IV drug use. Three, uh, they noticed uh, it was being diagnosed in Haitian refugees um, or people of Haitian origin. Um, and then four, a hemophilia A. Um, when did this all happen? 1981 were the first official reports. 1982, the first case report in Africa. Um, and then where? Mainly Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Central Africa. And how? So they believed uh, the risk factors uh, were or, or the modes of transmission were sexually transmitted, were bloodborne, um, you know, with 
blood transfusions or needle sharing, and also perinatal transmission. Um, and later on, in the next couple of years, they would go on to say that they were, these were the only modes of transmission that airborne or just touching another person or just casually around another person weren't modes of transmission. But at the time, they did not know this. So this generated a lot of panic, fear, anxiety, uh, discrimination amongst people that were around those that were diagnosed with AIDS. Um, and why? So because of the way it was being transmitted, they were suspecting it was a viral agent. However, they did not know the, exactly what. So research began in search of this viral agent. So who discovered the causal agent? So um, in 1983, 1984, the causal agent of AIDS was discovered and it was a retro retrovirus, what would be later named human immunodeficiency virus in 1986. Who is credited for this discovery? Well, that was a topic for much debate and dispute because in 1983, uh, the Pasteur Institute in France, this is Dr. Luc Montagnier. There's also sources that say that it's, it was Dr. Francois uh, Barr, um, and they said that they discovered it. Uh, but then Robert Gall Dr. Robert Gallo uh, in the United States, in the National Cancer Institute, he said he discovered it. This was like in 1984. So this kind of dispute would go on for year, four years, and then I'll tell you what happened. Um, but uh, this is basically when they first noted that the HIV was the cause of AIDS. Um, other important things that happened in 1983 and 1984 is that they realized that there was a heterosexual AIDS epidemic going on in Central Africa. Based on this information, CDC adds a fifth risk group, um, which is women uh, heter who have heterosexual partners, um, of who are partners of men who have AIDS. Um, and CDC says for the first time, we should not use IV drugs or we should kind of go against needle sharing in order to prevent the transmission of HIV. Also in that year, San Francisco orders the closing of bathhouses and New York follows suit. So let me explain what bathhouses were. So um, in the 1980s, uh, the gay men were, had, were, had just been their rights were they were more liberal. They had been fighting this in the 70s. They were more closeted. Now they were out in the open. And these bathhouses were places where they would congregate, kind of, you know, um, be meet other men, some people they knew, some were strangers. And there was a lot of sexual activity going on. It seemed very commercial at the time. It seemed very safe, a safe place for them. Um, and then when San Francisco and New York orders the closing of this in order to ha kind of prevent AIDS, HIV, the uh, gay community was not happy. They felt that all that they were working for in the 70s, they were now being decriminalized again, um, kind of a, in brief. Uh, so 1985, AIDS was recognized worldwide. There's at least one report of AIDS in each region of the world. Um, so there's the AIDS pandemic is recognized. Uh, the first international AIDS conference is held in Atlanta. Um, and what I, the image I put there was there's this very good source on New England Journal that has an interactive timeline. And it, you can click by year and also by country. And you could see the prevalence of 
AIDS in that country in that time of year. I think it was very helpful. Um, and I encourage you to all to look for it. Um, also, major breakthrough in, breakthrough in HIV diagnosis in 1985. The first licensed HIV test was approved by the FDA. This was an ELISA test. It would detect antibodies against HIV. Uh, blood banks were using this to screen the, the U.S. blood supply. And also, this generated a lot of controversy. Why? Because they were saying that people had to mandatorily get tested. And this was causing controversy because one, later on, years later to follow, they would be using this test to uh, screen the military and reject uh, them if they were HIV positive. They would also be using this test to screen uh, immigrants on, and denying their, their uh, entry to the, or their visa to the United States if they were positive. They would be also, uh, there was also a lot of concern that if you tested positive, you would be quarantined or further discriminated against or, or uh, and that was a lot of concerns that was going on uh, during this time. Uh, and this is, uh, Dr. Um, President Ronald Reagan, he's not a doctor, um, that he, um, for the first time in 1985, he addresses HIV. And it started in 1981. So there was a lot of, also a lot of stigma and fear about talking about it publicly. Um, so dying from AIDS, there were a lot of people dying from AIDS in the 1980s. Um, but it's not until this person dies from AIDS that, uh, that this was the first public figure that died from AIDS. His name was Rock Hudson. He was a movie star, a heartthrob. He was uh, had a his homosexuality. He kept it secret. Um, he came out in a lot of movies. Dynasty Giant. He co-starred with Elizabeth Taylor, and he dies in 1985 uh, at age 59. And he, they did a celebrity benefit, and he was too old to attend, but he, uh, he wrote, he, he sent a message which said, I am not happy that I am sick, I am not happy that I have AIDS, but if that is helping others, I can at least know that my own misfortune had has, has had some positive worth. So when he dies, he, like, he leaves a large amount of money, and, he help, and that money helps set up the American Foundation for AIDS Research, MFAR. And the national chairman for this is Elizabeth Taylor. Um, so let's talk about the different types of responses to the AIDS epidemic. For every action, there is a reaction. Um, and as you all know, there's ways to respond negatively to something, and there's ways to respond positively. Um, so there was a lot of fear, panic, anger, discrimination, homophobia increased. That brought a lot of violence, hate crimes. Uh, people became confrontational, intolerant, a lot of protests, mistreatment, ignorance, miseducation. Um, but there was positive things that came from that. AIDS activists, um, funding, uh, treatment, research, education, policy change, compassion. Unfortunately, these positive stuff were a little bit slow and lethargic compared to the negative stuff, which was really immediately after the AIDS epidemic started. Um, and 1986, the term human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, is widely used and adopted. It's not until 2006, 20 years later, that they developed this theory of where it all originated and how it all started. But again, it's a theory. It's not like uh, we don't know. 
it they say it was it first started in chimpanzees because they saw they discovered kind of an HIV-like uh, virus in in this animal. It, apparently, it emerged in the 1880s in Africa, but it was not recognized. Then somewhere in the middle, uh, in 1921 uh, or 1920s, the virus jumps to human, and then the first cases came about in 1981. 1983, it was discovered, and 1986, it got its name. That's one of the, one of the theories. Um, and then 1987 was a very important year, not just because I was born in that year. Uh, <laughs> But also, <laughs> in AIDS uh, ep um, history, um, treatment. So the first uh, treatment for AIDS uh, was a FDA-approved antiretroviral drug, cytidine, ACT. But a lot of good thing, a lot of bad things came with this treatment. Among them, um, it was expensive. The proposed cost per person per year at the time was 10,000. It was inaccessible. Only the rich, or only the only few people had access to it. And it was very difficult to tolerate because of his side effect profile. So um, ACT UP, which was, uh, it means AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Um, it's a activist uh, group founded by Larry Kramer in New York City, and they protest a lot of these issues. They protest the cost of AZT, and subsequently it was low, lowered. They they protest the slow government response. They protest uh, the the FDA taking a long time to approve other drugs, um, among other issues. And then uh, there was funding. So the U.S. Congress approves. 30 million in emergency funding to the United States in the 1987. This would lay the groundwork for ADAP, which is a drugs assistance program. It would also lay the, the groundwork for the Ryan White Care Act, which we'll talk later. And it also pre preceded uh, the PEPFAR, which is the pre President's Emergency Funding for Research, which came later as well. Um, also, the FDA approves treatment investigational new drugs, INDs, and this accelerates drug research for about two to three years. And then this picture that you see here is the French Prime Minister, Jacques Chirac, and Ronald Reagan, and they settled the dispute in the scientific research company uh, uh, community and said, we're going to share the credit for you know, discovering HIV, but then <laughs> the French later <laughs> won the Nobel Prize, but okay. <laughs> They, um, and then this is the AIDS Memorial Quilt. It was, uh, the idea for this was Cleve Jones. He was uh, an activist for ACT UP. And they decided to commemorate or, uh, you know, raise AIDS awareness with this quilt. It was a panel of eight, eight by four. There was 1,920 panels. And each panel had the name of somebody who had died from AIDS to that point. And that was... Uh, displayed in National Hall, and it attracted about half a million visitors. <clears throat> so in 1988, the first uh, World AIDS Day uh, was celebrated on December 1st. Also, the first needle exchange programs were implemented in this year. In 1989, the first PCP guidelines came out, and then subsequently we'd have all different types of guidelines on Healthcare workers, opportunistic infections, and how to treat HIV, how to prevent it. Uh, but these were the first 
uh, guidelines. And then we cannot go start to talk about the 1990s before talking about who was Ryan White and why he was important. So Ryan White is that little boy that you, or teenager that you see there. He was from Indiana. He was born in 1971. He was born. He had hemophilia A when he was born. So he was receiving these blood transfusions regularly. Um, at that time, each unit, uh, each transfusion had about 26 different blood donors, and there was no screening at the time. So if life wasn't enough for him, that he had to be this little boy with hemophilia, not, ha you know, not falling down or taking special precautions, getting regular blood transfusion, he gets diagnosed with AIDS as a teenager, and he tries to go to school, and they kick him out for having AIDS. I'm sorry. Um, and they ban him, and they kick him out. He, um, in that docuseries, there's uh, actually clips of him trying to... Um, take a class through the phone and they can't hear it because of, you know, the line is kind of, it has a lot of static and he's really frustrated. Um, and then he decides to be, to speak up against AIDS discrimination and to be, and to go to the courts and fight for his rights. You know, when he goes back to school, the kids were bullying him. They were drawing obscene stuff on his notebooks, calling him homosexual fag. And he wasn't even, he didn't even get it that way. Um, he got it from a blood transfusion. So in 1990, after, uh, you know, at age 18, after all of these fighting for his rights, going to the courts, all this hassle, he dies and, and he receives AZT for about three years. And then the Ryan White CARE Act, CARE meaning Comprehensive AIDS Resource Emergency Act passes. And this basically provides funding for HIV community-based care and treatment and is what we still use now. So he's very important. Every, uh, when I saw his story, I kind of cried and I got like sentimental and my boyfriend was like, why are you crying? Uh, but I just felt like, you know, Isn't it yeah, I was like, you're a little boy and you have to go through all this. But he was very important for AIDS um, history. Um, and then the next decades. And so I, I really focus a lot on, on stuff that happened in the 80s because there was a lot of firsts, not a lot of milestones. So now I'm just going to try to focus um, and summarize the advances that would, that would come in the next following decades in the 90s and 2000s. So in 1992, uh, this is a figure that I got from the CDC website of an MMWR that was published. And it basically uh, is showing us the number of AIDS cases among men who have sex with men, those who inject drugs, uh, those who were exposed through heterosexual contact and from 1981 to 2000 in the United States. So if you see the black line, that's MSM. The blue, the, the light blue, it's like ID, IV drug use. And the teal turquoise color is heterosexual contact. So if you can see where it's peaking, it's in 1992, 90, 1993. Um, so in 1992, AIDS is the leading cause of death for men ages 25 to 44 in the United States. Um, and we'll talk about this little arrow here that says 1993 definition implementation in a few, but this is where uh, the AIDS epidemic is peaking. So in 1993 to 1994, 
93, CDC expands the AIDS case definition, and they say that a, set, a CD4 count less than 200 is AIDS defining. Also, in the definition, they include that if they have pulmonary TB, if they have recurrent pneumonia, or if they have female cervical cancer, they can be diagnosed with AIDS. So this kind of broadens the definition, so that's why we see more of a, also a higher peak. And in 1994, it's the leading cause of death of all Americans ages 25 to 44. So in, um, in black, we see uh, the AIDS incidence. Uh, in blue, the deaths and the green prevalence. What happened here where the arrow like is pointing, this arrow, that we start to see that the incidence is declining. The prevalence is still high, but the incidence of AIDS uh, cases and deaths are declining. First time, 1996. Somebody take a guess? Well, it's important to um, know the advances in HIV diagnostics and therapy in order to understand what happened there. Um, so HIV diagnostics, 1985, the ELISA, the first test. Then in 1987, the Western blot, which was the confirmatory test, which was more specific, also detect antibodies. 1994, the first oral HIV test. 1996, the viral load test, which detects the level of viremia, which is something we still use today. And 2002 was the first rapid HIV diagnostic test, which was a point of care test, which was a breakthrough in that you didn't need to store it in a special environment. It, you could keep it at room air. You didn't have to have it in the hospital or in a laboratory setting. The, uh, it, it was really fast. You would have your diagnosis in 20 minutes. Um, so there was a lot of, and now we have the antigen antibody test. Um, but in 1996, the number of new AIDS cases drops for the first time since the epidemic, and it's because of highly active antiretroviral therapy. So let's go through the timeline. 1987, ACT gets approved. 1990, um, the ACT is approved for use in the pediatric AIDS cases. 1994, the U.S. Uh, Preventive Health Service recommends that AZT be given to pregnant women in order to decrease the risk of perinatal transmission. And then in 1995, the first protease inhibitor, inhibitor sequinavir, gets approved. 1996, the first non-nuclei uh, NR NRTI gets approved, which was nivirapine. And the 1997, the first combo drug, Combivir, which was combining two drugs, uh, but it was easier for the patient to take, gets approved. Um, so in 1997, heart gets, is the standard of care. Uh, this uh, person you see here, Dr. David Ho, he's an AIDS researcher. He gets on the time man of the year cover because he was the one who said that you should hit early and you should hit hard. You should, because there was this debate if you should start treatment or not. Um, and he said, you should get these people on treatment as soon as possible because that way you can keep them healthier for longer and that you could help curb the AIDS epidemic. Um, and then also the prevention strategies uh, evolved as well. At first, uh, it was based on behavioral change. Well, let's do abstinence. Let's use condoms. Let's be uh, let's uh, be faithful to one single partner. Let's uh, implement needle exchange programs. But as we all know, 
pe it's difficult to change people's behaviors, okay? Um, so they say, well, let's do some biomedical advances, and then they start to screen the blood. There, there was also some ref reports that male circumcision was effective um, in decreasing the rates. Um, and then treatment advances, using treatment for prevention, and also PrEP gets approved in 2012, recently, five years ago. Um, and then they say no single intervention is going to stop AIDS, so it's better to use the combination prevention approach. And so we just discussed all this. Um, and AIDS and pop culture. Um, in the 90s, uh, there was a lot of publicity, a lot of AIDS in the media. Um, so just to mention a few examples, not all of them, uh, this uh, Broadway show, Angels in America, Tony Kushner, he gets the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Rent, I saw it with Mindy and Christina in my first year of fellowship, and I cried as well. Um, Philadelphia, I saw it, like, part of my research is seeing all these movies. So, <laughs> so I saw Philadelphia about a, a month ago, and it's about this uh, lawyer who gets thrown out of his job um, because he starts developing these Kaposi's lesions and he sues the company with for AIDS discrimination he actually Tom Hanks actually wins best actor in 1993 for this um, Dallas Buyers Club I saw this a long time ago um, and it's about him this Texas electrician who's diagnosed with HIV AIDS and he starts smuggling illegal drugs into the site into the United States in order to kind of treat people and then this one I saw on the plane actually um, after I attended the sick patient. Um, and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is about Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen. He is homosexual, he gets diagnosed with AIDS. Um, and I kind of lost, got lost in translation because I saw the first part in Italian and then I realized I could see it in English halfway <laughs> through. So I'm gonna have to see it again. And this is Liberace, he was an American pianist, and the list goes on and on. Nelson's Mandela's, Nelson Mandela's son died of AIDS as well. Um, but who cannot can remember or cannot forget when Magic Johnson announces in 1991 that he was you know, a HIV positive, and now he's a person living with HIV. So um, the point is, where are we now? So this is a nice timeline that Dr. Morano sent me. She knew I was doing this presentation and she was very helpful sending me stuff. And uh, this is a timeline of all the HIV medicines that have been approved by the FDA. There are some that are not available in the United States or no longer recommended for use. Those are the ones that are in light gray. Um, but there's like this other blue color that confuses it, but you can see it over here in the Proteus inhibitor here. Um, and 2018, we have Victarvi, we have Duravarine, we have the Ibalizumab, we also have Sintusa, and, and they didn't mention it there, but we know that in the, there is research on this intramuscular cabotegravir. So we've come a long way in terms of medications. Um, we are not only using these agents for treatment, we're also using it for prevention. We're using it for pre-exposure prophylaxis, Truvada. We're using it it for post-exposure prophylaxis when we get called at night because somebody got a needle stick. Um, 
or when somebody had a high-risk exposure, or maybe somebody got raped. So uh, we've come a long way with these agents. HIV then and now, um, terminology, the thought process, the stigma has changed, the education. Then you were diagnosed with uh, AIDS, it was a death sentence. You were a person dying from AIDS. Now you get diagnosed with HIV or AIDS and you're a person living with HIV if you take the treatment, if it's successful, if you do your follow-ups. Um, so we offer our patients not only treatment, but we offer them hope, optimism. Um, back then in the 80s, there was no screening, no treatment. Now, you know, universal screen, uh, adults should be screened since uh, at least one time in their life. Uh, in their life. We also uh, recommend recommend universal chest and treat now before it was treatment as prevention you go see you now we're we're encouraging everybody to get tested and treated as early as possible from one drug approved in the 80s we have all that list of drugs approved now uh, from not no, knowing much about how the virus was transmitted or prevented we have prep pep safe sex condoms among others um, but there is still a lot of work to be done and if you go to the CDC website, there's a whole lot of maps showing by risk, uh, uh, statistics by risk, by group, by state, by country. So I encourage you to look it up if you are curious about it. But I wanted to share this one. This is the rates of HIV, of HIV diagnosis in the U.S. And you see Florida's in the darker blue as well, not as light. Puerto Rico's in there as well. Um, and there's a lot of health disparities still. There's a, a high a prevalence or incidence in Latino, in African American. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done. And what are the challenges ahead? So the UNAIDS, which is this joint government agency efforts, proposed in 2017 proposed 90-90 targets. But um, when they proposed this, uh, they estimated that 36.9 million people were living with HIV. Uh, of those, only 75% knew that they were HIV positive and the rest did not. They also said that three out of five people were on therapy, meaning that two out of five weren't, and that only 47% of, of those had reached um, virological suppression. So based on this information, they want by 2020, that 30 million people know that 30 million people are on treatment, that 90% of them know, that 90% of them get on um, antiretrovirals, and that 90% of them get suppressed. It's kind of a lot of work to do, but I don't know. We'll have a year to get there. <laughs> and this is just uh, released this month, actually a week or two ago. And this was in the uh, published online, the JAMA. Um, and this is the uh, HHS proposing um, how to eliminate new HIV infections. So this is a program that they will try, or an initiative, that they will try to infuse in 48 counties, also in Washington, D.C., San Juan, Puerto Rico, and seven states, where they saw that there, there was a substantial or significant burden uh, in these rural areas of HIV, and they're going to send this HIV kind of health force and a lot of resources to those areas in order to kind of, you know, hit the hot spots. Um, I'll show you the map now. So yes, look at the Florida. All those dots, 
represent the counties or uh, highest burden. So Florida has a couple of dots there. Um, and I'd have to kind of read the whole thing to see which counties. Um, and this is the article that just came out, Puerto Rico, Florida, those seven states that are rural. Interesting, right, how we don't see a lot of dots here. Um, so they, what their goals are is 75% reduction in new HIV infections in five years, and they want 90% reduction in 10 years. Um, and this is their plan. Um, and then the future of HIV. Notice I haven't mentioned vaccines. They've been trying to develop a vaccine for years. Um, and there's in the timeline, there's uh, in my references, there's a timeline uh, from HIV.gov that talks about all the attempts, failed attempts at a vaccine. Currently, there is no FDA approved vaccine, but still research is underway. So it's maybe something to look out for in the future. And the other thing is, have we reached a cure? Well, no, we haven't really reached a cure for HIV yet. This gentleman, the Berlin patient, Timothy Ray Brown is supposedly considered the, the first um, cure. And it was because he, he was diagnosed with 95 with AIDS and then he got diagnosed with leukemia. He got a stem cell transplant of a immune donor to HIV, that's what they think, and he was, he's been off antiretrovirals for a year, and scientists have been trying to replicate this, but it's failed. And then the Mississippi baby, which I'm not going to go into much details, they thought they, this was a cure case, but it rebounded and it dashed all hope. Um, just being dramatic, but kind of encourage you to look into these stories in your spare time. Um, and these are my references, these are the articles I used. The websites are used. There's a lot of information, a lot of good information. And this is the end of my presentation. This is uh, some of the pictures that were taken at the health department. This is one of my favorite places to be, as you all know. Um, this is Dr. Morano. Uh, that uh, she is part of why the reason I love HIV AIDS so much. These were fellows that are already graduated. This is Mindy and, and the nurse, some nurse practitioners and nurses at the World Day, Day in December. This is me and one of uh, my favorite nurses there. I was looking at the picture and I, I, I was like, she looks like my mom. She looks like she could be my mom. But no, we're not related. We're both Puerto Rican, but we're not related. Mm -hmm. And I realized I don't have pictures with the first years in the health department, so we have to take a picture. Um, so any comments, questions? I know there's a lot to cover, a lot that I probably left out. And I apologize, but it's too much to talk about in such a short time. But I hope it kind of gave you food for thought and, uh, and encouraged you to look up more about HIV AIDS history.